Comfort Ministries. I hope some of you are watching us. Maybe you're snowed in somewhere today. I've heard from some people that they're snowed in, which sounds like fun if you have lots of food and heat. <laughs> um, if you don't, we pray that, you know, for breakthrough and God takes care of you. Um, it's cold in Georgia, for, for Georgia, so I'm wearing my long underwear today. <laughs> So um, we are going to go to Acts 16, beginning with verse 16. And if you've been following along with us, this has been the amazing, wonderful story of how Paul thought he should go back to visit the churches he'd planted in Asia Minor. But God made him take a left turn instead of a right turn and took him into Europe. And so where we pick up, Paul and his party are in Philippi at the northeast corner of Greece. And this marks Paul's first European church. Before this, he has been preaching among the Jews. He's been in Asia Minor. But now this marks his first plant in um, what started the continent of, of Europe. Thessalonica will be the next city. It's about 100 miles west of Philippi and was the largest city of Macedonia, if you recall, what he heard in that vision was, come over to Macedonia and help us. So this was the region of Macedonia. And Paul and his team were only there a short time, relatively, but they made a great multitude of converts. As you've heard me say before, if you've been following along in the series, we look at the workings, the happenings of the first church, the first century church, and we see such amazing stories, such signs, wonders, God coming through in just marvelous ways. We see converts like, like here in, in Philippi, um, believers, baptism, <clears throat> baptism in the Holy Spirit, and just glory all over the place as the church is being established. But remember what I've told you, there always comes with it trouble too. <laughs> Always with those wonderful signs and wonders and um, revival like we're praying for, right? We are praying for revival in America. We are praying for revival in these days. But at the same time, we have to know along with that revival always comes some kind of trouble. We, it's, it's, revival is messy. Revival is, is a battle against the forces of darkness. So we're going to read one of those stories um, Today, starting in verse 16 of, of Acts 16, <clears throat> it says, And it happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a certain slave girl, having a spirit of divination, met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. So I did quite a bit of research on this, and it's really it's very interesting this, it was very clear this slave girl had a spirit of divination. They wanted her to have this spirit of divination. It was a spirit by which she was given a supernatural ability by the evil one to predict the future. It was um, recognized to be a demonic python spirit. Why is that? Because the python in that culture and in that religion was a mythical snake that was worshipped at the place called Delphi. If you ever go to Corinth, 
you will see there the ruins of the great temple of Apollo, very close to Corinth. And this mythical snake, the python, was one of was the god, one of the gods that was worshipped at the temple of Apollo in Delphi. So this puts into context a lot of Paul's epistles to the church at Corinth deal with new believers coming out from under the practices and the beliefs of Delphi worship. We have to always read things in context. Who was this written to in the New Testament? Why was it written? What was going on in their fellowship, in their gathering that Paul is addressing or the other epistle writer is addressing? And when you read the books, um, the epistles of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, do a little research about this. The Temple of Apollo, the worship of Delphi, because then you'll understand why Paul speaks very directly. Sometimes people think, man, he's hard on those guys. But he is trying to help them separate themselves as new believers in Jesus Christ and worship him in a holy way, separate and apart from the practices they used to use in the worship of um, the Temple of Apollos and this religion of, of Delphi. When you get that context, a whole bunch of things, especially in First and Second Corinthians, make, make sense. So this slave girl was possessed by a demonic python spirit, um, which was considered, the, I guess, the stronghold of the region. Um, this was the main god. And this demonic god or spirit would operate through oracles, who supposedly gave wisdom and counsel uh, for high sums of money or lavish gifts. <laughs> That's why she brought great, um, brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. So does this all make sense and kind of fall into context? Um, further researching this a little bit, a slave girl like her, I mean, this is just trafficking. You know, they brought this girl in, she gets Possessed by this python spirit, she becomes an oracle. She can give out wisdom and counsel, and then her masters can make a bunch of money. Um, the one inhabited by a pythia or python demon would inhale hydrocarbon gases. This is what I read, which put them in a trance, which made it all the more seem like it was just something very dramatic and something people would believe in. So they would inhale this gas, put them in a trance. In the trance, they would mutter incomprehensible words, which the priests of Apollo would translate. So someone in need of wisdom, you know, I don't know what to do in my life. Someone in need of direction would go, and then this person would go into a trance, and they'd mutter these incomprehensible words, and the priest would say, I can translate that for you now, you know. $1,000. <laughs> it was a great money-making scheme. Here's another weird thing. Since the oracle spoke in this, it was not the person, but actually the spirit speaking through them, the term ventriloquist was used to describe them. That's where we get the word ventriloquist, because obviously the puppet isn't the one doing the speaking. It's the person speaking. You know, that's where we get that term. Okay. There's the history, cultural, social studies lesson. <clears throat> so 
as they went to the place of prayer, Paul and his team are meeting. There's a church forming. Lydia, which Rick talked about yesterday, is kind of the leading lady there that has all these friends. And their, their church is building. They're instructing them, discipling them. And as they went to their meeting place, this slave girl um, began to follow them. Verse 17, following after Paul and us, us means Luke is included because he's the one writing this account, following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, these men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Paul and us is Paul, Timothy, Silas, and Luke, and maybe some others that we know is at least those four. Okay, interesting. Why? What is she crying out? These men are bondservants of the Most High God. You're going, hmm. You know, how is she, why is she giving even glory or giving the name of Most High God? Well, as you look into that, that was not, she did not mean Yahweh. <laughs> she did not mean the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one true living God. This term most high god is used in other places other contexts the most uh the most famous or the most the one we we know well is the story that happened in the ministry of jesus in mark 5 7 you recall the man with a legion of demons he used the same terminology mark uh, 5 7 says and crying out with a loud voice He said, actually the demons inside of him said, What do I have to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? So it was a common title among people in Jewish regions and Greek regions. It just kind of meant a superior God. Because there was such a plethora of gods, there was always one that was higher than the other, right? There was always a contention of who's the highest God. So this term, most high God, referred to a superior God, not as we would use that term today, saying there is one true living God, the most high God, the only God. Um, But God can use, the Holy Spirit can use anything or anyone to get the message out. Remember that. This man with a legion of demons said, Son of the Most High God, she cries out in the marketplace. These men are bondservants of the Most High God. Remember, demons recognized Jesus, didn't they? Uh, When good Torah-studying Jews did not. (laughs) Demons knew exactly who he was. When those he came to serve and save and had their scriptures did not, they missed him. Demons today recognize Jesus. Let's remember that. Demons today that are affecting our lives and affecting our world, they know who Jesus is. They know he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. They know their end is near. They know their fate, that he is going to deal with them and throw them into the lake of fire. I have a funny story about that with my son when he was five, but I won't, I won't, <laughs> I won't go there. Um, demons today know who Jesus is, I would venture to say, better than most people just going to church (laughs) who are 
Lots of them very confused about who Jesus is today, or if he is the only God, or if there are many gods, and we can have Christian universalism and kind of go to God any way we want. Demons know who Jesus is. So God can use anything. He can even use demons to proclaim the truth of who of who he is. Okay, so back to um, Acts chapter 16 and verse 18. And she continued doing this for many days. So they're in the marketplace. They obviously have to pass through town where all she's getting the business from her masters to go to this quiet place by the river where they would have their prayer meetings. And every time they pass through, um, this kept happening. She continued doing this for many days. But Paul was greatly annoyed. And turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. That has always, that's always kind of caught my attention when I've read this. That what was Paul's response to this? Was he scared of this demon? Was he intimidated? Was he confused? You know, what's going on? Was he like so distracted that he, he, lost his his uh, path of or his his attention to what he was there to do um, did he feel like oh I'm in over my head this is too much for me I, I this whole culture and I don't know what to... he was simply annoyed <laughs> I like that I like that because sometimes we get so intimidated or worried about evil that it literally can get us so focused on the evil we get distracted from our purpose, from our call, from Jesus Christ. Or we feel like we're in over our head. And I could tell you so many stories without ever trying to diminish anyone where they would send, maybe they would send to Rick somebody who's got a problem, maybe similar to this, to say, we don't know how to deal with this kind of thing. We've got to send a person that's got this kind of a problem to somebody else because we we're in over our head when it comes to this. You know, the church today... I feel like we're just not discipled or equipped or empowered or know who we are in Jesus Christ enough to just mostly be annoyed by the devil instead of so scared, so intimidated, confused, like, I don't know what to do. How do amen? I mean, yeah. So I like Paul's response. He was just annoyed. Like, we have to do this. We have to go through this every time we pass through town and pick up our breakfast and our egg McMuffin before we head down to the... Um, they could eat an egg McMuffin by then because they were free of the law, so they could now eat ham, right? <laughs> so what's Paul's response then in dealing with it? Obviously, he'd just been ignoring it for several days, just you know, hoping it would go away. But he finally said, I've had enough of this. I'm annoyed. And he turned and said to the spirit, to the spirit. He said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. Again, we find this in the ministry of Jesus. When he deals with the man that is filled with a legion of spirits, <clears throat> back in Mark 5, let's start with verse 6 and just kind of do a few verses of that story there. And seeing Jesus from a distance, he, the man who is filled with all these demons, ran up and bowed down before him. Why? Because the demons knew who he was. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, 
What do I have to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, what is your name? Okay, because it doesn't always capitalize him, him. I've heard this interpreted different ways. Like Jesus is is asking the demon, what is your name, and dialoguing with him. I don't believe that at all. Jesus knew exactly what he was dealing with, and he was speaking to the man, saying, I know there's a person in there. Jesus knew how to differentiate between the person and the demon, or demons in this case, that had control over the man. And he said, there's a man in there. There's a person in there who God created, who God loved, who, as you see how the story ends, God has a purpose and a call for. Jesus would separate that. So when he asked, what is your name, he was talking to the man. Who are you? There's a person in you. But the demons answer for him because they have so much control over this man. And the demons say, my name is Legion, for we are many. And I can just imagine like a Star Trek uh, collective voice there, you know, the, the Borg. My name is Legion, for we are many. <clears throat> and he began to entreat him earnestly not to send them out of the country. So as Jesus interacts, he knows he's dealing with, a de- with demons, and he also knows he's dealing with a man, a person who God has known from his mother's womb, who God loves. So Paul does the same thing. He looks at the girl, but he speaks to the spirit, and he says, I command you, in the name of Jesus Christ, to come out of her. And it came out that very moment. You've heard Rick teach us many, many times, we have to be able to discern between physical and spiritual. What is physical, like mental illness, and what is spiritual? This is a case of clearly spiritual. She is possessed. She is used by an evil spirit by evil men who have have taken her in as a slave and used her to make money. He knows there is a precious girl that Jesus died on the cross for there, and there is an evil spirit using her. And he looks at the spirit and he says, get out of this dear girl. (laughs) And Paul knew who he was in the Lord. He wasn't confused. He wasn't intimidated. He knew his authority not his authority, but the authority of Jesus Christ, who has all authority in heaven and earth, and he knew the Spirit had to obey him. And it came out that very moment. Verse 19. But when the master saw that their hope of profit was gone, (laughs) that's loaded, isn't it? They've been making a lot of money. Verse 16 said the masters made much profit. So this, their whole enterprise just went under when this girl can no longer be used as an oracle of the spirit. <clears throat> when the master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. So what was their concern? As today, often the bottom line is money. Money, right? And so here we get to the place where I said, yes, we want to see the um, 
events of the first church. We want to see the church revived and see the same kind of things that happened with the first century church. But just as today, even then at the beginning, the gospel is often persecuted because of money, because of the bottom line. Why? Because the popular the popular gospel draws crowds. <laughs> the popular gospel draws offerings. So, and we're seeing this in our ministry and talking to people more and more today. Pastors, leaders, ministries are really having to seek God on this. Do I do the profitable thing? Because I want to keep the doors open. I want to pay the bills. If I just kind of go along with the status quo, hopefully we can just keep things operating. And I want that. I want people to keep coming. And people are just struggling. Leaders, ministries, having to make a, a, I think, ever-widening choice. You know, you could kind of go with the status quo and yet stand for Jesus and, and be true to your convictions. But it's just getting harder and harder. Do I do the profitable thing? Or do I take the more unpopular stand, which costs, sometimes costs everything? And that forces us to live by faith, knowing God will provide. Because the system isn't going to provide anymore if I go along with it. Amen? So we are praying for you in that position. It's affecting most of us. Especially people who have a call. People who are working for the kingdom leaders, teachers, preachers, pastors of the true gospel of Jesus Christ. We are we are praying for you. We know you are in a crisis. You are in a, um, there's a just a sifting going on and there's a, a watershed moment going on for you. And we know some of you are under great stress, having to make really hard decisions and seeking the Lord on this. So we, we are praying for you. Um, will you compromise? For money, to keep your job, to advance in your job? Or will you say, Lord, I'll pay whatever cost. I'll live by faith. I'll depend on you. I don't know how this is going to turn out, but I'm, I'm casting myself on you. We're, we're with you. We're praying for you. Amen. So to kind of wrap this up, um, actually it just starts the next part of the story which John's going to pick up with tomorrow and I told him he has to sing the song that's about it but he's he's not agreeing that he's going to do that <laughs> verse 20 and when they had brought them to the chief magistrates they said these men are throwing our city into confusion being Jews and are proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe being Romans Okay, the magistrates that they brought them to are men that are appointed by Rome. Rome um, basically let people practice their own religion as long as they were not rebellious toward Rome. And as long as they paid their apportionment, so to speak, to, to Rome, as long as they gave to Caesar what belonged to Caesar, they allowed the Jews to practice Judaism. They allowed this worship of Delphi to go on, which was the big religion of the whole region of Macedonia. So these these men come before the magistrates of Rome and they say, hey, this is our culture here. This is our industry. This is our, this is our type of worship. And 
We like it. <laughs> it works. And these men are disrupting it. Um, they're throwing our city into confusion. <clears throat> they're bringing different beliefs. And, and Rome, like I said, did back up that each people group could have its own religion as long as they remained loyal to Rome. Um, so what happens in verse 23 and 24, or let's see, let's go on to 22. And the crowds rose up together against them. We just like what we're used to, don't we? I mean, this young girl had just been set free from a spirit. But that spirit kind of kept the industry going. It kept the culture going. It kept what that what we were used to going. Um, maybe some of them wanted to go to an oracle and receive wisdom and guidance, and that's where they turned to for help. And now it's not going to be there available for them. So it was disrupting everyday life and everyday culture. And, and we like our culture our, to stay the same. So the crowd, it isn't just the men who are making money off of her. It wasn't just the magistrates that say you have a right to have your own religion. This is the crowd saying don't rock the, the boat. Don't rock the status quo. <laughs> don't come in here with your Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues and this and that. Let's just keep things the way it's always been. We like it this way. <laughs> the crowd rose up together against them. And the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. This is, I mean, I guess I, I can't even comprehend what a big disruption this was for their culture. Just this one act of ministry to set this girl free. But it obviously is much greater than we can understand, right? Um, that, it, that they took such dramatic action against them that the chief magistrates and then the crowd's reaction caused them to throw them into a place that was reserved for the most violent criminals. They didn't just say, get out of our town. They didn't just say, don't, you know, you're not welcome here, leave. They threw them into the worst prison, which I don't think we can imagine how horrible that prison must have been. And then they, well, they beat them with rods. They scourged them, which under... Roman law was a most brutal punishment. And Paul recalls this in 1 Thessalonians 2, chapter 2, verse 2. He recalls this event. I'm sure he never forgot the pain and suffering of this visit um, or this, uh, this event in Philippi. 1 Thessalonians 2, it says, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. Because from Philippi they went on to Thessalonica. 
But he recalls after we had suffered and been mistreated in Philippi. The scourging under Roman law was with rods. And they would beat the person, the offender, with rods until they were just almost unrecognizable as a person, just stripped of their, of their skin. Then they throw them into this horrible prison. And um, then it says they fastened their feet in stocks, verse 24. <clears throat> totally unnecessary. These aren't violent prisoners. You know, these aren't violent criminals. It was a further form of torture and it seems that after they put wait, the verse 23 says when they had inflicted many blows upon them they threw them into prison commanding the jailer to guard them securely so it seems if you read that the jailer it seemed to be at the jailer's discretion he had you know he was just to to watch over them to put them in prison but he decided to take it to the nth degree it was at his discretion to put them in stocks. This gives him a lot of power. Like, I'm in charge of you guys. You know, this gives him this macho. And the reason I'm bringing this out is because when John teaches tomorrow, we're going to see his repentance, which will mean all the more. When you see the mindset he has here, that he didn't just do his job as a jailer and lock him up, he decided... Yeah, I'm going to use the power I possess to put them in stocks, which was apparently when you put them in stocks, their legs were spread far apart, persons laying on their back, and they can't move, and there's just, as hours go by, severe pain in the legs and the back and the body. It, this is just above and beyond what the crime called for. <laughs> punishment that was above and beyond and that was at the jailer's discretion so just a spoiler that will lead into John's teaching tomorrow verse 25 but about midnight Paul and Silas laying there on their backs legs locked into stocks being beaten with rods in so much physical pain what is their response Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And that just gives me a lot of questions. If I was in their position, what would be my response? You know, this humbles me. This challenges and convicts me. I complain. I demonstrate self-pity if I have a headache, if I have a backache. If I have the tiniest persecution. So um, John's going to take this tomorrow and continue about what happens with Paul and Silas and the jailer. But just in conclusion, my last comment is that this whole story reveals more and more about Paul. That God gives an audience to Paul everywhere he goes. Everywhere he goes, he creates a riot in town. And people hear and have a choice to choose. Even before magistrates. God is giving an audience to Paul everywhere he goes. And now he's in prison and he has a captive audience. <laughs> he just won't shut up. <laughs> Every persecution gives him a platform by which to share Jesus. So may we also be so convicted and strengthened. That we use whatever we're going through wherever we are as a platform 
to proclaim Jesus and that he is the Most High God, and we will not shut up about that. Amen? Okay. Well, John, we'll see you tomorrow, but we have more teachings coming from now till noon, so stay tuned or keep tuned. God bless you. Bye-bye. Who became the sacrifice for everyone? Oh, God's mercy, so amazes me. Oh, God's mercy, so amazes me. To every generation. He gives the joy of His salvation. Oh, God's mercy so amazes me. As I watch the world around me, I can see His from the seed of Abraham. And led them through the wilderness into the promised land. In boundless love and mercy, He gave His only Son, who became the sacrifice for everyone. Oh, God's mercy so amazes me. Oh, God's mercy.